Tim French in the one on the ones and twos in the background. I guarantee you don't play this for jazz. <laughs> he's shaking his head. He's like, brother, that's for you. And I appreciate every step of it. Rob Fayed for jazz. I'll be here till six again. And uh, looking forward to spending the afternoon with you. Food banks near and dear to my heart. Any chance we get an opportunity to talk about this and shine some light. It is uh, an honor to do so. Greater Vancouver food banks need your support now more than ever. CEO of the GV food bank, David Long, kind enough to join me today. David, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Rob. How are you? I'm very well. And, you know, we always look to holiday seasons to bring up this conversation, but I thought, you know, a lazy Wednesday would be a perfect time to shine some light on all of the efforts that you and your volunteers are doing behind the scenes. Uh, This is where you really need to start ramping up. As you know, that the seasons are changing and things are going to get colder and families are going to be in need. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, people always think that the, so the Christmas season is, is the time, um, but it's sort of, it's become a year round. Um, you know, there's, uh, it's, it's just as important sort of when kids are coming out of school, summer holidays and things like that. It gets tough for families at that point. And uh, today's announcement from the, the hunger count that came out from Food Banks Canada, it, uh, it paints a pretty stark picture across the country, unfortunately. It is, and I think the one thing that I've been really surprised in in just conversing with people is the face of who is walking through the doors of a food bank has changed. I mean, a lot of people think that it's just society's most vulnerable, but there's a lot of families out there that are getting paychecks but still just can't make it to the end and need your support. No, absolutely. Uh, We're seeing more and more working people um, coming and using the food bank. and I think the number in 2023, I think the report was about 17% across Canada uh, of food bank usage is actually people that are fully employed, uh, which, again, paints a, a stark picture of the, the seriousness of what's happening across the country. David, if I'm driving around and I'm like, okay, fine, I'm going to make a donation, what are some of the things that you can truly need? I, I mean, a lot of people will say, okay, well, I'll just drop off some non-perishables, but what are some things that maybe, uh, you know, some of our listeners don't think of that are actually things that you utilize on the regular? Uh, well, the best way to donate to, to, to your local food bank is actually to donate money. Um, if you can donate money, that's great. It really gives us the flexibility to buy the food that we need. Uh, we really focus on fresh food at the Greater Vancouver Food Bank. So, you know, we're looking at uh, eggs and milk and cheese and fresh fruit, vegetables and meat. Um, and people having a tough time, can, you know, they can afford those instant noodles or the craft dinner. What they can't afford is the, the kind of food that uh, we're trying to present uh, them with on a, on a weekly basis. And if you can't afford to do a financial donation, you know, please donate your time. Uh, we have about 60,000 hours a year of volunteer time, and we literally couldn't run the food bank without our amazing volunteers. David Long is the CEO of the Greater Vancouver Food Bank here on the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Uh, David, can you maybe explain why a dollar in the food bank's pocket can go a little bit further than a dollar in my pocket? Uh, absolutely. Uh, we have phenomenal buying power. Uh, we monitor it closely and, and we, we, we shop with, uh, you know, we deal with a lot of local farmers. Um, there's just some amazing organizations out there that we deal with. Uh, and I actually, uh, I just uh, gave my board of directors a report last night that sort of showed their buying power over the last couple of months. Uh, and take bell peppers, for example. We were able to buy bell peppers at 15 to 1. So 15 times cheaper than the, the average person would be able to buy bell peppers in, uh, in, a, in a grocery store. So, you know, overall, we average about 2 to 1. Um, you know, we try to make the money go as far as possible. And that's why financial donations really are the best solution. And I know the lot of the relationships are really important to the food bank. Are there some partners, uh, some brands out there who are really supporting you guys in particular that maybe we can go and support them as well? 
Um, absolutely. The big grocery chains um, are, are, are fantastic. You know, we, we, we work a lot uh, with Loblaws. We work a lot with Costco. Um, you know, some of these uh, these big uh, big stores are, are, are really generous, and uh, they help us. All that help goes a long way. And David, final question for you. I just want to talk about stigma and awareness. Overcoming the stigma sometimes associated with food assistance can be a challenge onto its own because some individuals uh, may be hesitant to access food uh, due to feelings of shame, due due to embarrassment. But I'd like to break that stigma here this afternoon. There is no shame in utilizing a food bank when you're truly in need. Oh, absolutely not. Um, in fact, if you, I guarantee you, if you come to one of our locations to, to, to look for some sort of uh, food assistance, you, you'll leave with a smile on your face. I've got an amazing team, an amazing crew of staff, volunteers. We've got music playing. It's, uh, it's a pretty happy place to actually come to. Uh, I think things have changed dramatically. Uh, and that's exactly why we are here. And uh, honestly, you'd be really surprised who has used the food bank at some point in their lives uh, everybody goes through a tough time, and everybody needs a little bit of help once in a while. So we're here for a reason. If you need some help, if you need some food for your kids, please don't hesitate. Come and see us. Wonderful. David, thank you for your time this afternoon. You're very welcome. Thank you. Rob Fain for Jazz, six minutes after four. I hope I find you well wherever you are this afternoon. You know, I will say this. I'm very fortunate my two children got through high school and neither of them came home really feeling that they were victims of cyberbullying. But it wasn't to say that they didn't see it when it came to some of their friends or some within their schools. So whether or not your child is a victim of cyberbullying, how do you approach this? And what are some of the signs that you might want to just kind of keep your eye on? Dr. Johanna Sam is an assistant professor at the Faculty of Education at the University of British Columbia. Kind enough to join us here on the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Joanna, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Well, it's my pleasure, and I I think this is the perfect time. I mean, a lot of these parents have just picked up their kids from school on a lazy Wednesday, and these are tough conversations to have. So let's get into cyberbullying just as a broad-stroke pen here. What are some of the things that that create, quote, cyberbullying? Yeah, so I think we should kind of define it first. So cyberbullying is any hurtful message, post, that an individual or a group of individuals may receive through an electronic device. Um, so it's very targeted. It's meant to be hurtful or harmful to young people. And I think today is actually a really important day to talk about it. It's actually Digital Citizenship Day in Canada. I did not know that. Yeah, it is uh, Media Literacy Week from October 24th to 27th of this week. So it is actually perfect timing to talk about healthy device use and responsible device use on um, Digital Citizen Day. Isn't that something? My spotty senses were tingling and it just happened to line up with something of relevance. <laughs> what do they say? A broken clock is right twice a day. Um, Dr. Sam, let's talk about this because, you know, a lot of times we just assume that we've got to go into our kids' phones or, or digital devices to see whether or not they're being cyberbullied. But there are some physical cues that you can also perhaps look at and, and, and some emotional and behavioral changes that might be able to kind of lead you to the challenges that they're facing. Yeah, one thing I hear from parents, a lot of concern is around screen time. So how much screen time is too much screen time is usually what I get asked. And what I tell parents to do is actually use that idea of screen time to open up conversations with their young people and ask them what are they doing online? What games are they interested in? Are they making videos online? What social media platforms are they using? And ask young people, how long do you think this would take you online? 
So for instance, if they're doing a homework project online or maybe they're doing some online gaming, ask them how much time. And the reason being is then you're getting young people to reflect on their own device use and what they're doing on screens. And then as a parent, you can kind of negotiate that screen time. Oh, do you really need that amount of time? Or, oh, maybe you might need less or more here. So getting them to kind of self-regulate what they're doing online. You know, one of the things that I've always found to be the biggest challenge, and I say this as a member of the media that still gets bullied from time to time myself, is anonymity. That is one thing that I think, you know, I'm a grown man. I can figure my way around this. But for kids, sometimes if you don't know where you're punching and you don't know where the punch is coming from, that can be a real problem. Yes, that is. And unfortunately with it, too, a lot of the time, it's someone that they actually know. It's someone that's in the same classroom with them or on the same sports team. What I hear young people saying about cyberbullying, they make spam accounts or um, fake accounts of people. And it's really someone that they actually know within their classroom or neighborhood or sports team. That's uh, that's heartbreaking when you think about it, because those are usually the people that you have nearest and dearest to you and in, in some instances even trust them. Um, doctor, before I let you get on, and I do appreciate your time this afternoon, what do we do as parents? I mean, we can monitor, we can use the tools to help keep an eye on the children's activities online, but I, I would assume that, quote, being aware isn't enough. What can we do to, to be more available to this and, and maybe nip it in the bud? Yeah, so young people, what they're saying that they're already doing to cope with cyberbullying is they're taking breaks from social media. Um, They're doing activities that they like offline. They ignore negative comments. Um, They like to continue on with their usual routine. Um, Sleeping patterns, uh, when you were mentioning what types of physical things we need to be aware of, if you're seeing changes in sleeping patterns or device use late at night, that might be a sign to talk to your young person about um, device use before bedtime. Um, they often seek help from family. They'll often go to their siblings first, their brothers and sisters, or else they might go to their friends. As adults, teachers and parents, they're often the last to know. So getting um, young people prepared to, to have those conversations with each other and support one another and really just encouraging them to reach out and seek support when something happens online. I hope there's a parent that's listening this afternoon that benefits from this conversation. Dr. Sam, thank you for your time today. I do really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Although 2028 is a little ways from now, flag football is going to be one of the newer things that you will see at the Olympic Games. And I thought that was really interesting because once you get past the, quote, stigma of flag football, as opposed to the bigger, brasher, you know, regular football that you would see on your television screens on Saturday and Sunday, um, I think this is actually a really neat add to the Olympic Games. To talk a little bit more about this, the president of Football Canada, a longtime friend of the show, Jim Mullen, kind enough to join me. Jim, good afternoon fella hey how's it going rob nice to hear your voice again yeah thank you and use yours as well um let's get right into this because you know flag football will have its critics but i think for the development of the game this is a good thing no oh it's fantastic for the development of the game because traditionally football is a game with late adopters and what i mean by that is sometimes we find our best athletes when they're in grade 10 11 12 Even a case like David Onyemata, an NFL All-Pro that played with the University of Manitoba, he was encouraged by friends to wander into the office of Brian Doby, the head coach of the Manitoba Bisons, and say, 
hey, I'd like to try football because my friend suggested I should. So here he is as a university freshman with no football experience before going and playing the game and, and learning as he went to the, at the university level. With flag football, it creates a great opportunity for us across the country in that this can be driven by kids. This is a great activity as well as it's a great sport. So kids 7, 8, 9, 10 can get out there, play football, do it in a non-contact environment, and then as they learn the skills, when they get to the age of 12, 13, or 14, families can make a decision. Does, does little Johnny or little Susie want to play tackle football? Do they want to play flag? Do they want to play both? Uh, I think the, the skill development that you're going to see in the game as a re- result of this decision by the IOC is going to be immense. One of the things, Jim, that caught me off guard until I read this article where you were quoted several times in it um, is where flag football is played. I didn't realize that this actually had a grip in Africa as well. Oh, yeah, it's uh, right across the world. Uh, some people were uh, chiding the IOC about and LA-28 about selecting flag football because they think it's an automatic gold medal uh, for the United States. I was at the World Games down in Birmingham, kind of a triple-A event for sports trying to get into the Olympics. Uh, it was last summer, and I witnessed Mexico's women's team beat the United States by four scores. They, they, they kicked them all over the field. Uh, the, the, the level of competition, especially coming out of Europe, is really keen. Uh, Denmark, Israel, Italy, uh, they can all give us a game. And even within the Americas, uh, the Panamanian team uh, defeated Team Canada at the last uh, Tournament of the Americas in, in Charlotte this summer. You know, the other thing about it, too, is, and I, was, I, I quite frankly doubted the ability of flag football to translate on TV. But when I went down to the World Games and I saw what the NFL could do with their technology and their TV know-how and how they applied themselves to, to capturing the athleticism of the game, uh, all of a sudden I was a believer. Uh, because what it does is it takes the skills of football, but because it's five-on-five, it kind of plays out with the athleticism of basketball or volleyball. And, and the other part of it, too, is it takes the pads off. You get to see the personalities, yep. right? And, and, and to see the personalities, just ask the NBA about how that works. Yeah, I would imagine that's a huge part of it, especially from a television uh, process. Jim Mullen is the president of Football Canada. Uh, Jim, just for one more moment, you mentioned uh, men, you mentioned women. I think this is something where this game can evolve on both sides of that, no? Well, especially on the women's side. Uh, I I see that in the next World Games, only the women's teams uh, are are playing at the next World Games. Uh, across the uh, United States and the NAIA. It's been picked up as a varsity sport on the women's side. I I think what we're seeing is uh, development of the women's game is kind of a gender offset to to the numbers that are in the men's games for these uh, university programs. I'm talking with you sports right now about uh, uh, bringing it on as a uh, varsity sport in 2025, and most of that focus is on the women's side, but don't fret. We've got a, a club-type competition uh, for the men as well to, to compete in a, in a national collegiate championship. But the, but the growth in this game is going to be on the female side.
It's very intriguing to me. Jim, thank you for shining some light on this and breaking it down for us. Let's talk about this again. Anytime. Kevin Bacon, right? Footloose? Very good. Talia's like, yeah, obviously. <laughs> I was, I was uh, having a conversation the other day, and we were talking about that old game. Remember the old game? Six Degrees of Separation. What is it? Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon? It's an amazing game. Anyways, all right, show contributor, uh, Jerry, back once again. Jerry, good afternoon. What's up? Thank you. Good afternoon. I was going to say, tough act to follow. Mm. You and I talking about buffets last hour. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I ever met somebody that matched my, like, je ne sais like, quoi for yeah, uh, Uncle truly. Willie's. just the joie de vivre that is the buffet. Oh, uh, my God, buffets you, are good. Well, yes, they are. <laughs> yes, they are. That's where I'm going to go while we talk about this, because you're going to be talking about something going on locally that needs a little love. Absolutely. I'm going to talk about it's basically a buffet of interesting music Ooh. that you write. What a segue that you might not expect. It's um, it's very interesting uh, as far as it's, it's not maybe your typical music festival, I suppose, um, but it is it involves academic music written by actual composers who are classically trained. But it's not I'm going to say it's not your mom's, not your grandma's classical music. So it's, uh, yeah, the Modulus Festival by Music on Main. It runs from November 3rd to November 6th. We've got 13 different events at different venues. And uh, I hopped on over yesterday to talk to Sarah Cruz. She's the marketing manager over there at Music on Main and Dave Pay. He's the artistic director about the upcoming Modulus Festival and what Music on Main is all about. Music on Main is a music presenting organization, and so we put concerts on and we do festivals. We work a lot with Vancouver-based musicians, Mm -hmm. and we work with musicians from around the world as well. So sometimes we also make connections for musicians from here to go play other places in the globe. So this coming Modulus Festival, we have about six visitors coming in, artistic directors from other festivals who are here to check out the local scene and learn about the musicians and um, hopefully hire some of them for future concerts. And while we're a little bit on the topic, because we're really here for you guys to brag about Modulus Festival, so tell me all about it, give me the skinny, and uh, yeah, brag about some of these artists we got. (laughs) (laughs) Bragging about the artists, I mean, they're not mine to brag about. They're just these amazing humans who can do things that are like unimaginable to most of us. They perform music that most of us couldn't wrap our brains around. They share it in these most expert of ways. We have some killer pianists coming, Zubin Kanga, who's Australian and lives in the UK, and Eva Goyan, who lives in Toronto. And both of them are showing us different ways that piano and technology are working together. So uh, in one piece that Zubin plays, he has kind of like eye watches on his wrists, and it presses different uh, intensities onto his wrist to tell him sort of how loud to play or how hard to press into the piano. And that's synced to um, a roller coaster generator. So it's like an AI roller coaster that you see on screen. And his score is these instructions in his wrist telling him how to play, like what's happening up on the screen. So you'll get some weird technology, music interactions like that. Like that's one of the things I love about the Modulus Festival is there's stuff you don't expect to hear and stuff you didn't even know you could hear. And uh, it's not just in one location, it's uh, across different venues around the city, right? The Modulus Festival takes place at uh, the Annex in downtown Vancouver and also at the Roundhouse Community Arts Centre in Yaletown. And they have a couple of different theatres there. And right now we're speaking inside the Post at 750, which is the home to Music on Main. And we have some talks and rehearsals happening in this space as well. Oh, cool. Oh, and we're going to Ironworks. It's a, a really cool venue that was an old ironworks kind of factory. And we have this 
amazing band of improvisers called Sick Boss. They're these players who will take melodies and tunes and ideas and sort of play them over, but with making a ton of space for free improv while they're doing it as well. Yeah, they also are kind of like a general bending band, so they also incorporate like punk rock, uh, rock jazz, so it's really creating like a new kind of sound that you know, you can find anywhere else for sure. Can you tell me how how can people get tickets? So you can go to music um, musiconmain.ca um, and go to Modulus Festival 2023, and all the uh, shows should be listed there. Um, so and also we do have an all access pass available, so you get one ticket for every single show, and also you get five drink tickets with four venues, and then there's three talks. So it's talks that people can participate and also interact with um, the artists. Um, we also have free events. So we have a free event with the Vancouver um, Youth Choir. Yeah, Sunday, November 5 at 3 p.m. The Vancouver Youth Choir is amazing, too. We say youth choir, but it's actually like 16 to 24 years old. So young adults, every time I hear them, it is so inspiring, this group of people coming together and sharing their voices. I think the Modulus Festival is one of those events in Vancouver where maybe you hear about it, maybe you don't hear about it. But if you look at the program, you won't necessarily know what is being played or who the players are but it's one of those things as well where it's like oh you know what i'm just gonna go check this out i'm just gonna choose one and have a new adventure so yeah it's it's kind of different than a lot of people expect at um academic music or music that comes out of composers writing notes on a page it's a lot of fun so that is, uh, again, Dave Pay, the artistic director, talking about the upcoming Modulus Festival. And uh, yeah, again, it's November 3rd to November 6th. You can go to musiconmain.ca. I love it. I love it. There's something about that that makes me want to go. And you know what it is? Mm-hmm. Is I just love unique. Yes, exactly. And it's right? so it's so cool. It's so different. Like I heard them talk about that pianist and I'm going to go see that one on Friday evening, actually, because yeah, this AI generated roller coaster video behind him and he's going right? to be scoring it on the fly. I think stuff like that is so, so interesting. Actually, my partner did a music minor in this exact kind of thing. It's in, in, invoking different senses and different ways of, of, of making music. It's so it's so cool. It's yeah. <laughs> Yo-Yo Ma is cool, but this is like different than Yo-Yo Ma. And I you think know, it's awesome. You know what's interesting is my wife is about to go to Kentucky. She mm-hmm. sings with this uh, company called Lionsgate Chorus. Oh, and it's out. like 100 women. Wow. 99 women. And they're getting ready to go to like the world championships. Oh, in, my uh, gosh. Congratulations to her. Kentucky. And yeah, they leave on Sunday. And wow. I, I'm really proud of her. I think it's great. By the way, the late Deb Hope also mm-hmm. sang in said group. So, no way. Uh, yeah. she, uh, I, my wife is pretty athletic as well she mm-hmm. did this planking contest uh, at their retreat their getaway mm-hmm. and she planked the longest so they give her this piece of wood that's been signed by all the previous oh. winners of this and deb hope signature is oh, on that wow. she was previously a planker as well which a I plank thought was, for planking yeah, a coral but, you know, singer who planks for planking <laughs> Wow. I, bring, I bring that up only because uh, music affects people in a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. And I, it was funny. I just watched her sing for the first time about a week or so ago mm-hmm. uh, at the Terry Michael J. Fox Theater. Mm-hmm. And I looked at her because she always leaves on Tuesdays. Mm-hmm. She goes and practices. Sure. And I'm like, what are you practicing? Yeah. And it all made sense to me. 
Oh. I looked at her afterwards. I was so proud. I'm like, I get it now. It all makes sense. So she's opened my eyes up to the fact that sometimes you just go to these festivals. Thanks Maybe for it's listening not your to the jam, Jazz Hall Show, show Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe mm-hmm. to the show on Apple or Google really Podcasts, Spotify, yeah, or wherever it's you get super your cool. podcasts. You, you can always listen to the Jazz Show Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 6 and then you can get tickets either by event because there's 13 different shows, or you can get a whole all access pass. They're even doing talks at at their at their venue you can like talk to the artists and stuff like that it's a whole super it's a whole cool. thing yeah super cool all right